afternoon, and welcome to the Friday edition of 7 Investing Now. We've been doing this all morning. We've been doing private members-only chats. So for those of you who don't know what 7 Investing is, we are a subscription investing service. You give us $17, we give us your seven, our seven best, not your seven best, our seven best investing ideas each month. So basically, we make stock picks, but it's so much more than that. You get access to us at private members-only events. So we're coming off two of those. We are all a bit punchy. But joining me today, Steve Simonton's back. Max Chatsko is back. And Matt Cochran is making his debut performance on 7investing now. Matt, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Hi, Dan. I'm happy to be here. Uh, just happy to be part of the team and do my part. Um, I look for companies with strong economic moats or competitive advantages, uh, preferably in growing industries or with large market opportunities. And that way, like those companies can catch like a double tailwind of taking market share plus within a growing market. Uh, this usually requires more qualitative work than like numbers. So like I do a lot of waiting through conference call transcripts and 10 K filings. And, you know, I just don't think there's anything more important when investing like to understanding a company's economic moat. So guys, we're going to open the show and thank you, Matt. We're going to open the show talking about airlines. There was a lot of news in the airline space, but before we do that, uh, Halloween is coming up. It's going to be a weird Halloween, but it is a week from Saturday. I had to check my calendar. If you told me it was Christmas or Valentine's Day tomorrow, I probably wouldn't know, but it's actually Halloween next week. Guys, what's your favorite Halloween candy? And those of you watching along at home, feel free to share your favorite Halloween candy. Guys, I'm going to go with the classic. I'm going to say it's the Kit Kat. That is by far the best of the Halloween candy bars. Max Chasco, favorite Halloween candy. Well, Dan, obviously candy corn. No, I'm just kidding. No one likes candy corn, right? So I'm actually an oddball. I uh, don't like chocolate. It was very fun to go trick-or-treating with me as a kid because you got to steal 90% of my candy. But uh, I'm a real big fan of like gummy bears, gummy worms, things like that. So as am I. Matt Cochran, your favorite Halloween candy? Uh, Kit Kat bar is a solid choice, but I'm going to go with Reese's Pieces. Interesting oh, one, the inferior M&M. Uh, so it's pretty much that <laughs> and Those are the only two people who I'll would make that. I'll take Reese's thing. Pieces over gummy bears, which is just like a, some kind of candied plastic <laughs> that takes seven years to digest in your stomach. But, I um, love I love gummy bears. Steve Symington, you are I, up last. I, I wish we'll people gave out score bars because I would just be in heaven. But I, I'd have to say Heath because that's what you end up getting. But Heath is like inferior score. So that's that's my, my this We could actually do a whole show on this. The score bar is my favorite <laughs> candy bar. I don't consider it for Halloween candy because it's not readily available. On I know. It makes Halloween. me sad. I can't remember the last time I had a score bar. <laughs> What is it? I'm a millennial. Can you explain that for what? It's a better, uh, it's a better bar, Heath better. bar. Yeah. It's a more buttery Heath bar. It's not as readily available. But guys, we're going to hit our top story first. That is, can the U.S. airline industry make a comeback? It was a rough week for airlines. American Airlines and Southwest both reported billions of dollars in losses Thursday. That's actually an improvement. <laughs> the American lost $2.8 billion. That's down from $3.4 billion last quarter. Uh, Southwest lost $1.2 billion. That's better than $1.5 billion. Uh, I'll throw it out there first to Matt. Are these numbers a sign that customers are slowly coming back to air travel? Matt. Well, the key word there, Dan, is slowly. So slowly. Yes, it is bouncing back slowly. Uh and look, there are signs things are improving. Uh, the TSA reported that the travel for this past Sunday uh, crossed the million mark threshold. Uh, now, 
a year ago uh, that day, the, the threshold was 2.6 million. So it's still down very much, but that's the this past Sunday was the first time since March 16th that the 1 million passenger mark was topped. Uh, yesterday, Southwest Airlines CEO Gary Kelly uh, stated, we are encouraged by modest improvements in leisure passenger traffic trends since the slowdown in demand experienced in July. However, until we have widely available vaccines and achieve herd immunity, we expect passenger traffic and booking trends to remain fragile. So I think those are the key words. It's slowly improving, but it's still fragile. Yeah, it's fragile. And guys, I just got an email from what I would consider the best airline, Southwest. They're the ones that actually like you. They, you know, JetBlue is is is, is customer friendly, but JetBlue does not have the sort of uh, you can always cancel your flight, the sort of the no fees, the very customer policies. But Southwest just sent me an email that as of I want to say December first, they will be selling some middle seats. So. You know, they're still maintaining mask rules. They're still distancing. It is a tiny comeback. Steve, do you think the pandemic has caused some permanent changes to business travel? Like, am I going to fly, you know, to meet you for a meeting the way I would have pre-pandemic? I I don't I don't think you will. And yes, I do think it's caused some permanent changes. Uh, I, so many, you know, the running joke is, is this could have been an email like a, in, in phone conference calls. But I think we're going to get a whole lot of this could have been a Zoom call. Uh, instead of paying paying the money to to fly across the country, we are you know it's not to say that business travel is going to disappear entirely. It will be necessary in some cases, and I have some pending interviews uh, next year where uh, executives had said, "Hey, we prefer in person interviews," and I agree that's nice to happen. Uh, but I do think we're going to have more of these. Um, more thought given to what is really necessary uh, because people realize that it's, you know, you're able to interact, you're able to accomplish quite a lot through, well, Zoom and other, uh, other platforms that way. It's a, it's a whole new world. And I think we are going to see uh, some permanent changes when it comes to business travel. I'll push back a little before throwing it to Max. Uh, you I, might. Think there's, <laughs> I think there's going to be less, a little bit less, but mm-hmm. the reason we travel isn't the meeting. It's the dinner. It's the yeah. drinks after. It's the interaction. Oh. Now, are there some perfunctory meetings where we used to have to sign things and there's no social part of it? Sure, those aren't going to happen. Are mm-hmm. companies going to say, hey, I don't want to spend the money for you to fly and go have dinner? That's absolutely possible. I think trade shows are going to come back with a boom. People are going to be excited to go to Vegas or Orlando or Anaheim or wherever it might be uh, you know, to see their friends, to, to learn the industry. Obviously, it has to be safe. Look, I could have flown out. I'm heading to North Carolina this weekend. I could have flown. I chose not to. I'm going to drive. That's partially over safety concerns. It's mostly because the itineraries are so inconvenient right now that I'm not actually saving that much time if I chose to fly. Max, to close this segment out, uh, before we move on to what we're watching, should the U.S. government be doing more to bail out the airlines? They've done quite a bit already. Should they be doing more? Yeah, I mean, I don't cover this as an investor, so maybe just as a uh, you know a citizen, I can kind of see both sides of the argument, right? On one hand, the U.S. airlines industry is a huge employer, so we can't just kind of sit idly by and, and watch everything kind of uh, you know go down the tubes. But on the other hand, I mean, yeah, these companies maybe aren't the best allocators of capital. The good times, I mean, they spent a lot of money on share buybacks, for instance, in recent years, and and now they're coming asking for bailouts. So I, I, I can see the optics of that aren't so great. We did very little to bail out restaurants, which is also a crucial business in this country. Now, there were some PPP loans, but many restaurants figured out how to pull through. 
every airline except Southwest within like an hour of the pandemic had their hands out. They had no rainy day fund. Like imagine if, if, you know, Max, we talk a lot about like the six month uh, rainy day fund you're supposed to have for your personal finances. Imagine if you lost your job and then tomorrow you had no money in your bank account. That is essentially, and you were doing well, you were getting paid a lot of money. That's where the airlines were. They spent their profits poorly. I'm in favor of bailouts tied to two things. They preserve and protect jobs. They preserve and protect flight routes. I don't want to have to fly through like Los Angeles to get to, you know, to get to Baltimore. That doesn't make any sense. And I want to see management changes. I don't want there to be share buybacks. I want every airline to have to have an emergency fund to get through the next problem. We're going to take some of your questions. Uh, Sam, feel free to share the comment that's up now. I don't know if you could see it. We have a little bit of a lag in how that works. Uh, I'll read it. I agree with Dan. It's more about social interaction and food and drinks after. I doubt it's permanent. It might take a while as companies will cut costs, but it's a cycle and eventually comes back. That's from Ishan Desai. I cannot wait to travel. Guys, we are 7investing. This program is brought to you by the team at 7investing. We are four-sixths of the investing team there. And of course, Sam Bailey, our producer behind the glass, is our director of marketing. At 7investing, it's a simple deal. You give us $17 a month or $170 a year, and our team of advisors gives you our seven best stock recommendations each month. Of course, in addition to those picks, you get access to our team. We just came off two live calls, one with new subscribers, one with subscribers. New subscribers, we taught them how to use our site. We told them some of the things that are coming. Existing subscribers, we gave them updates to some of our picks. We don't talk about our picks here on 7investing now. We only do that for members. Steve, if somebody wants to sign up, how do they do that? They want to sign up, they just go to 7investing.com forward slash subscribe. And uh, pretty easy. It's a, it's a relatively seamless process. If you have any questions uh, or concerns along the way, uh, you can feel free to reach out to us directly at info at 7investing.com. We are monitoring that constantly. You will get personal replies from us if you have any questions. And uh, we're always available. But 7investing.com forward slash subscribe if you want to join us and see our recommendations. In our next segment, Matt, Max, and Steve each pick one story. It's something they're following. It's something they're really excited about. Uh, Normally, I pick one as well, but I didn't in the interest of brevity today. Matt, you wanted to talk about an industry that uh, that is near and dear to our hearts. A few of you know, Matt and I live about 40 minutes apart from each other, and we meet once or twice a month for dinner. Matt has like nine kids, so it's hard for him to get out. I only have one, and especially in this non-travel age, my wife is eager for me to get out. She doesn't even ask, like, are we being safe? Are we going to be car- you know, someplace that's not crowded? She's just like, fine, get out of the house. It is worth it. But Matt, where does the restaurant stand right now? It's not great, but some of these changes are going to be positives, right? Uh, yeah, well, it depends, I guess, like what kind of restaurant you are, depending on like if you see this as ultimately a positive or negative catalyst. Uh, COVID-19 has certainly shaken the restaurant industry to its core. Almost 20,000 restaurants uh, might have been permanently shuttered due to the pandemic. That's according to data from Yelp. Uh, <laughs> many restaurants that have reopened have been forced to pivot on the fly. Uh, with enforced dining room capacity limits. Uh, Closures across the restaurant and hospitality industries could also send the economy into a sustained downturn, uh, especially with further government aid facing an uncertain future. Uh, 
trying to look through the economic carnage to the other side, the existing restaurants that have the financial strength to survive and are well positioned to, to navigate this trend, uh, meaning they already operate heavily in the carryout and delivery segments, uh, might be uh, like facing less competition on the other side. And as people have... <laughs> Matt, that's a brilliant way to look at it. That's like if like eight major league baseball teams go out, go out of business, you could be like, wow, the Red Sox have a better path to the World Series. But it is true. And we're also seeing it's about innovation. It's not only Starbucks that does mobile order and pay. I've seen a, a local chain here. I don't know if it gets as far as you called Bole. Uh, and they innovated really quickly. They set up curbside pickups. They had an app. They take orders over the phone. They hustled. And we are seeing some of that. Sorry, Matt, stepped on you a little bit there. No, that's all right. Uh, but I, I think it's true, too, because it's not just like, yes, they'll have less competition at the end. But while people are making deliveries and ordering now, they're also signing up for reward programs that these restaurants offer and things like that. And, you know, like to your point, like small restaurants are some small restaurants are pivoting quickly. And that's an opportunity for companies like Square. Uh, which offer like services to restaurants uh, where they can easily integrate delivery and carry out and curbside pickup, things like that right into their point of sale systems. Uh, so there, there's going to be opportunities here uh, on the other side of this. Yeah. And the companies that invested in this and like, you know, take McDonald's, for example, I, I've often talked, how stupid is it for McDonald's to be going into delivery? I was wrong. Now, my logic on that was who wants a, a, a 20 minute old chicken McNugget? That to me is like, you might as well eat drywall. Like McDonald's food should be eaten instantly, but not only are people ordering it, the numbers were going up pre-pandemic. They place a bigger order. And why is that? Well, if I go pull up to the drive-thru window and I ordered nine McNuggets, six large fries and four shakes, I'm being judged by the person there who's going, really? You're going to have all that? If I order that at home, you don't know if there's 10 other people in my house. So it is a driver. That's been really good for, for Starbucks as well, where you could get your you know double venti frappuccino, no, no, make it with cream, not skim milk. Matt, one last question about the restaurant industry. It's a personal one. Is it sad when you see a restaurant you like do everything wrong? And I'll give the example. We meet at a restaurant called Shane's Rib Shack in Boca. And I would say the two times we've had dinner in the last couple of months, we have been the only customers there. And they've done very little to promote mobile order, pickup, delivery. I don't see signs for DoorDash or Uber Eats or Grubhub. We're going to see a lot of this, right? A lot of local restaurants that just didn't pivot and go out of business. Yeah, absolutely. And it is sad. Uh, you know, the last time we were at that restaurant, it was it was almost a ghost town inside. I, I think we had I think we had the whole restaurant to ourselves besides a couple of carryout customers uh, while we were eating um, it. You know, it's uh, it, you, you know, you have to be able to innovate, you know, and if, if it's just that's the reality we live in. And we were already moving to an omni channel uh, digital buying, but picking up, you know, at the restaurant kind of world. And this just accelerated that, uh, tenfold and it pulled a lot of that innovation forward. And if you, as a restaurant owner, if you weren't willing or able to make that pivot, uh, yeah, you're, you're probably facing some hard times right about now. Yeah. It's all about optionality. It's not that we're only going to get food delivered, but we're going to get food delivered in situations where we maybe previously didn't. And I think that's absolutely going to be important. Yeah, Max, and even, 
Oh, just real quick, okay, okay. even a little more than that, it's really about convenience, right? Like you, wherever your customer is, you want to be able to meet them and sell them your product there. And like for these restaurants, so like if you, if people want to order on apps, people don't want to go inside to pick up their food or they want to deliver to their, their residents. And you just have to be able to meet your customer where they are to, for that convenience. Max, you're going to talk about something that might get us back to restaurants a little more safely. The US FDA, that's the Food and Drug Administration Advisory Committee, held a meeting yesterday on coronavirus vaccines. Matt, when can I get my vaccine and go on a cruise? Oh, man, I don't know. But yeah, the <laughs> FDA has some regulations around what it can and cannot say about development stage assets. So sometimes or often it will uh, convene these advisory committee meetings, or we just call them ADCOMs for short. So that's a way to bring in independent scientists. They come in, uh, they nerd out on all these little things that you know most people don't really understand. Uh, and most of the time, no one really cares that these meetings take place, right? They actually hold this one quite often on vaccines. But this time, obviously, the stakes are much higher. This is mostly focused on coronavirus vaccines, and that is indeed what they focus on. So um, it was live streamed. There was tons of content, articles. Everybody picked it up and talked about it. So this is basically a way to set expectations uh, for going forward for the industry, for healthcare providers, for the public, and by extension, investors. So, you know, we have all these clinical trials underway now for vaccines. And this independent ADCOM meeting basically tried to lay out the groundwork for, well, how do we actually determine what is an effective vaccine, right? You get a vaccine, your body produces multiple types of antibodies so many days later. Well, what is the actual scientific metric quantity that we want to see? How many antibodies, what type, how many days after getting a vaccine? And that would be the minimum level of effectiveness. Then they talked about, well, okay, how effective do these vaccines have to be? Um, not everyone who gets one of these vaccines will get immunity to the coronavirus. So, and given the circumstances where we need basically to inoculate the whole globe, um, you know, we might uh, accept something that's less effective than we would in, you know, something that was less of an emergency. So maybe we accept something that's 70% effective or 60% effective. And if we roll this out over the whole population, yeah, it's good enough. Um, they also talked about safety. So there's some certain things they brought up that probably might not be an issue or very rare side effects. So in the first uh, SARS vaccines and the MERS vaccines in the early 2000s, in animal models, they saw something called enhanced respiratory disease. So animals that got uh, administered these early vaccine candidates uh, developed something where they had trouble breathing. And so we haven't actually seen that yet. I don't think in clinical trials in humans, it might not be an issue at all. It might only affect a very small percentage of people. And again, given the circumstances, we might have to accept a little bit greater risk. So Max, let's assume we got a 60 to 70% effective vaccine. That means the the new normal post-vaccine still involves being careful, right? Like it's it's still going to mean masks. It's just going to be less people get sick and the hospitals are, are more able to deal with it. Is that a, a reasonable take on it? Yes. So, and again, we're going to accept something that's, it's not going to be a hundred percent. But the important thing too, to remember is it's going to break the chains of transmission. So, you know, wherever you live, if there's 60 or 70% of the people are immune to it, then the chances of you getting it aren't actually 40%. It's much, much lower. Um, so that is what they talk about with herd immunity. And again, there might, you know, by the end of next year, maybe 50 million Americans have already been exposed just in the environment. So that's also a way to get immunity. Not that any of us want to go that route. But um, yeah, so this is going to be a, a longer term road. I think people are still going to be coming down with this, you know, maybe even two, three, four, five years from now. 
Um, but it's going to be much lower and obviously not an emergency. We appreciate those of you watching at home. This is, of course, archived. This is 7investing now. It's archived on YouTube. It's streaming live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Uh, who knows? We might be on MySpace. We might be on Classmates. We are a <laughs> lot of different places. Feel free to share your comments in the chat. It doesn't work all that well right now. It's a little bit challenging. We're working on new features, rolling out the ability to have a more robust Q&A, the ability to get you more involved. We're going to get to Steve's story. And then after that, we're going to talk about some investing mistakes we have made. We are not perfect. We're really good at this. But every investor has made some mistakes, even Max. Uh, Steve. Demand in the housing market is absolutely insane, according to Redfin CEO. Let me, let me speak personally here. I am trying to rent a larger property. I want to put where I live, which is a three-bedroom condo that's about 1,350 square feet. That's downtown, and being downtown is not that useful right now. I want to put my place on the market where it will rent in five seconds, and I want to rent someplace bigger. And places are renting in less than a day. We saw a place less than one day after it it went on the market we made an offer that night and we did not get it somebody else beat us to the punch steve talk about how redfin sees this yeah this is this is wild so redfin uh his the ceo of redfin went on cnbc last night and those are his words he said demand in the housing market is quote absolutely insane he's but he also said there's no way this can last forever uh, because of the level of demand, he, but he's, he expects it to last at least into 2021 because what's happening is people are trying to buy houses and they're sort of resolving themselves to, to thinking, man, there's no way this is going to happen this year. So they're going to try again next year. And you have this kind of follow on network effect of people watching people sell their homes incredibly rapidly with a lot of competition. And uh, it, it's very difficult uh, and, and sort of a, a humbling um frustrating experience for a lot of consumers. Actually, my mother-in-law oh, is looking for a house right now. Going. And that's really hard. Um, and she's like, well, I, what do I do? You know, the house goes on the market. She gets an appointment. They say the first appointment's tomorrow morning. And by that evening, the house is under contract in, in, here in Missoula. And it's, it's wild to watch, but this is something. Yeah, and it's something that's not likely to change anytime soon because, you know, there's a little bit of a shift of population. People are moving, you know, a tiny amount of people are moving out of cities. I don't want to overplay that because the amount of available apartments in New York was something like 15,000, which is like three times more than there usually are, but millions of people live in New York. So it's not yeah. like we're all fleeing to the suburbs, but I live in West Palm Beach, Florida. If your office is closed in New York or Detroit or Boston or whatever it is, and you know you probably don't have to go back to the office for a year. You might come live in West Palm Beach or Miami for a year. That's what I'm competing with. And those people can pay more. That's going to be good news when it comes time to rent my place. It's been bad news as I try to find a place. But guys, let's, let's shift gears here. We're going to talk about our biggest investing regrets. And why do we do this? We don't do this to tell sad stories. We do this to talk about that there were times we didn't follow our own advice. When we were younger investors or we were different investors, we weren't long-term investors. Here at 7 Investing, we recommend that you buy a stock and essentially hold it forever, no less than three years, unless something massively fundamentally changes about the company. What does that mean? Maybe the CEO changes and you don't like the direction of the CEO. Maybe the company was previously the number one burger chain and they say, yep, we're going only plant-based. Well, that'd be a big change. Maybe I'd sell my stock. But for the most part, you don't want to do that. Steve, I'll let you kick this off. Share one of your biggest investing regrets. Um, 
I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out uh, something I've talked about before, selling 249 shares of NVIDIA five years ago to help fund my house. And we've also said I don't really regret that, even though, you know, that I I netted like $6,000 in proceeds from that sale and it'd be worth closer to $150,000 today. Uh, But hey, that happens. And uh, and selling too soon is all too often one of my bigger regrets. But I I think I should also mention uh, a topic from when I was a young investor. I do regret when I was a lot younger, spending too much time early on focusing on share prices appearing to be high uh, based on fundamental valuation metrics. I mean, when I was younger, I really didn't fully appreciate or understand the concepts of optimizing flat uh, cash flows or building enterprise value by not necessarily letting profits fall to the bottom line. And think about Amazon, for example. Um, They scarcely reported profits for the better part of their first two decades as a publicly traded company. And uh, really, that comes down to responsible capital allocation. And uh, it's not an indication of a bad business. So uh, valuation does matter. That's one of our seven investing principles here at 7investing. But there is a point at which uh, you need to realize that traditional valuation metrics aren't particularly effective and that there are better ways to gauge the enterprise value and growth potential of a business. So don't only focus on share price looking expensive just because, you know, you have a share price that might be in the thousand dollar range. That doesn't mean it's more expensive than a company that is, you know, trading at 20 bucks a share. They could be the same market capitalization. They could have the same potential. uh, And that's something that uh, is a big regret from when I was very young and uh, kind of learning as a young investor. Uh, that I yeah, think. and you want to look at sort of uh, optionality and what they could do. So if you're Amazon, probably in the early days, nobody envisioned Amazon Web Services. But the yeah. second they get to the scale they are, is there any business Amazon could announce now that you'd be like, well, they won't make it? If they came out and said, we're going to build a theme park you know, mm-hmm. somewhere, you'd probably say like, ooh, I'm not sure that would be my pick, but like they could probably make a go of it. They know so much about you. They can enter. Yeah. I mean, they're launching a chain of grocery stores that has the potential to be a massive national player. Well, that's yeah. billions of dollars they can add. Max, what is an investing mistake you regret? Oh, guys, let me tell you a story, right? June 29th, <laughs> 2010, a little company had its IPO. That company was called Tesla. A younger, less experienced version of myself bought it at the IPO. I was, uh, it was like my first year of investing. I didn't know what I was doing. And I sold it a few months later. I haven't even calculated what that would be worth today because it's too depressing. <laughs> but, um, you know, and one thing that I, I want to point out, it's always easy. Like, you know, some of my friends or maybe us, we talk about what it would be worth today. But like, let's be real. If would I have actually held on to it, even if I didn't sell it in a few months, I might've sold it last year. I might've sold it two years ago. So it's always easy to backtrack and look at what it would be worth today. But, you know, um, I could have sold it at any point and, and still regretted it. So you can't beat yourself up too much. That, that's why we talk about buying and holding forever. The reality is, I don't know, you know, at some point you go, well, geez, could Apple be a $5 trillion company? It didn't seem like they could be a $2 trillion company because it it was not that long ago where ExxonMobil was the biggest company in the world. And I forget the number, but it was a sub-trillion dollar. I think it might have even been a sub-$500 billion market cap. So the world is changing and it's changing rapidly. Matt Cochran, what investing regret do you have? Ah, well, my tale of woe takes us back to the summer of 2017 uh, when I was a young 40 years old. 
<laughs> hey, I'm and the oldest guy a, here, so it was a simpler time. No one was wearing masks. Uh, people still went to restaurants. Uh, and during this time, I became aware of a company called the Trade Desk, which was a technology platform for ad buyers uh, on platforms like Connected TV. And this company was well positioned to capture the growth in an emerging market and was led by a visionary founder. And many investors I trusted uh, recommended it as an investment. And I was happy to get in at a price, a stock price of about $60. And uh, as I was studying it over the next several months, though, uh, the stock price lagged and it, it, it went down about 20% over about a six month time frame. And at the time, I grew tired of it. I thought maybe it wasn't a good long-term holding. And I sold it for about a 20% loss. A couple months after I sold it, it like exploded. And about right now, like without being exact, it's about a 10-bagger from my original uh, st stock purchase of $60. It's about $600 right now. And so I am one of the few Trade Desk investors whose claim to fame is that I actually lost money while being a shareholder of the trade desk. <laughs> That's TTD for anyone paying attention. <laughs> yeah, it, it, guys, we bring these up because we've all made these mistakes. And Steve, maybe you could share at 7investing on, on our Twitter handle. Ask this question. What is your biggest investing regret? We'd love to hear from you. That's at 7investing. But guys, now it is time to close the show. It's time to hit our finisher. We shared on Twitter. Which industry should the U.S. government help with a bailout? 20.1% uh, said airlines. 42.1%, that's the winner, said restaurants and bars. Yeah, I like restaurants and bars. 4.6% said hotels. That was an overwhelmingly, we don't want to bail out hotels. 33.2% <laughs> said none of the above. Uh, because I just asked Steve to do something, I'll throw this to Max first. Max, do you think there should be government bailouts of uh, industries broadly or, or any of these industries specifically? Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, again, like I can, you can see both sides of the argument. Um, but I would agree with you, what you added before about the airline industry, you know, we should have strings attached at the very least. I think they do that in Europe quite often. Um, and you know, if we're going to have taxpayers bailing out companies and kind of like socializing the risk of that, we should also maybe share in the benefits when they come back and do better. Right. Maybe, you know, so, so let me tie this all together. At the beginning of the show, we talked about airlines. And one of the questions we get asked a lot is, airlines are too big to fail. When should I invest in them? Like, they're so far down. And here's the reality. They are too big to fail in that some airline with a similar name will fly those routes. We are not going to not have airlines that fly, say, Los Angeles to Boston and, and uh, Orlando, Florida to wherever. That's going to happen but shareholders can get wiped out. There's been something like 50-something U.S. airline back bankruptcies in like the past 20 years. So when is the right time to invest in airlines? Probably not at all. Steve, anything you want to add here? No, I uh, I, I think uh, the restaurant industry could use some help and they're not getting it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think I agree with the general consensus of that survey. Matt, I'll give you the last word because you talked about restaurants. We're tying it all together today. Matt Cochran, last word here. Uh, no, I, I think you guys make good points. Uh, I think there definitely should be strings attached to it. I'm probably not the person to to determine what strings those are. I, I would say wherever there was a government mandate where something had to shut down for a period of time, like so 
like at the beginning of the pandemic, especially like where I live, like uh, like restaurants, like any restaurants, dining rooms were like forced to shut down. There was no dining options. So like in cases like that, I think uh, industry should receive bailouts like uh, that's commensurate with like the government mandated restrictions they were facing. So Matt, back to you. I want very specific uh, industry by industry. No, just kidding. We're not. <laughs> so, yeah, you want this tied to jobs. You also want it tied to reality. Here's one of the problems with restaurants. A lot of people open a restaurant because they cook well. We, we've all seen those shows where like a famous chef goes in and tells you how bad you're doing with your restaurant or John Taffer comes in and says maybe there shouldn't be rats in the fryer in your, you know, in your bar. That You need to look at the books of the restaurant. What I don't want to bail out is the restaurant that was going out of business anyway. I don't want them to stay in business for 10 more months. So I do think there have to be some strings with, were you profitable or on the path to profitable before this? I know that's difficult because there's obviously some restaurants that are trending up and then the pandemic hits and they lose all their momentum. Uh, but I would like to see my favorite restaurants, my favorite bars have a better chance of surviving. And with that, for Matt, Max, and Steve, I am Dan Klein. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at info at 7investing. That's the number 7investing.com. It actually works if you write out 7, but it's faster to write the number 7investing.com. That's info. Or you can follow us at 7investing on Twitter. We're off on Monday. Uh, I'm going gambling for a couple days, but we'll be back with a live show Wednesday at noon. 7 Investors, thank you for watching. Steve, Max, Matt. Guys, I'll see you Monday or Wednesday. Sorry, I'll see you Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs>